right. Welcome to the Grace and Danger show. I don't know who's Grace and who's Danger. We'll have to fight that out. We'll fight Grace it out, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm vying for Danger. I thought Danger was my middle name. But... All right, so I'll go for Grace. With the way of beauty, it has to be Grace for me, I think. Fair enough. <laughs> well, it's uh, an interesting day. Uh, January 6th is when we're doing this, and it's kind of the, the capital is in turmoil. Um you know, things things got ugly pretty fast, I would say, <laughs> from a from a aesthetics point of view. A lot of people were commenting on my Twitter feed that the optics were bad. Uh, I'm curious to get your take on if you've seen some of the images coming out of D.C. What do you think about the optics? The optics. Um, well, I haven't seen any of the images. I've heard about what's going on. And... Um, when you say the optics, you mean what? Where's this going? What does what What does this? No, speak? I mean literally what the what the man on the street would think seeing the pictures that will encapsulate uh, today's okay. events. Which which I can just kind of paint a little word picture yeah, yeah. for you. Yeah, go on, do that. Uh, imagine a Minnesota Vikings game where you have uh, body paint, a lot of tattoos, uh, people wearing uh, you know furs. Uh, shirtless with so, so, horns coming out okay. of you know, sort of a kind of neo pagan aesthetic. We're almost. talking the great unwashed here. And there's also been some question as to how much of this could be uh, agent provocateur or yeah. whether there's some kind of controlled opposition. But uh, at, at first blush, and assuming that at least some of these people are genuine uh, MAGA types uh, storming the Capitol and, and uh, people being carted out of the, the Congress building um on a, on a gurney you know it's 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 not looking good for uh for the the rally to to restore american virtues today well it doesn't so the, my first I, when i heard that uh like well, i was just listening when i came here that uh there was a news report saying that they said they'd lost the building that somehow the, the people had stormed it somebody's being shot so that's terrible uh there's violence um, and then, of course, beyond that, um, I'm always thinking about what, how this will be twisted, what impression it creates. Um, kind of difficult for the left to say very much. I, no doubt they will, given that we've just we've just lived through a summer of this sort of thing going on in every city uh, that's Democrat controlled, as far as I can work out, with very little condemnation. You know, the mostly the famous mostly peaceful protests while there's flames going on in the background. Um, this is uh, higher profile, um, but it does indicate a level of uh, real dissatisfaction. I think it's emblematic of that. And I have to say, part of me wants it to be noticed. I, I don't want any anyone to be hurt, and I think it's, that, that is terrible. But um, and I don't want damage done to property. But... That it, to see um, it understood that there is a level of unrest and dis-unease, if I can put it like that, at what has gone on um, is important because in the end it doesn't matter who holds the, the power. Um, everything is there by virtue of assent ultimately from the population. Um, even in a... I remember someone got into trouble for saying this. Um, it was one of the presidential ca ca uh, candidates, the uh, the Democrats, um, Bloomberg, 
he said apparently at one stage you need to have uh, even in, in a totalitarian regime you need popular uh, sense now that might be an exaggeration but the point here is that um, even if you hold the power if people don't really believe that that uh, it is incorrupt uh, that people aren't wielding power uh, at least according to the rules which would be the constitution in this case you're in trouble and I think we're on the verge of that um, and so that is maybe that point will be made home my worry is that uh, there will not be any fair elections in the future in this country. Let's hear what Trump said just a, a few minutes ago. This was uh, when it became clear that there were people kind of uh, sticking around who, who maybe were uh, going a little bit beyond what we would typically think of as free speech rights. But I, I think your, your point remains that uh, sometimes politeness uh is is not always the the top priority with that said let's just let's listen to what trump said a few, uh, a few i think it was about an hour ago i know you're pain i know you're hurt we had an election that was stolen from us it was a landslide election and everyone knows it especially the other side but you have to go home now we have to have peace we have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election. But we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. Well, uh, let's contrast those words in which Trump is clearly trying to stop the violence and stop the nastiness. Uh, with these is an alternative point of view with regard to people protesting. The whole point of protesting is to make people uncomfortable. Activists take that discomfort with the status quo and advocate for concrete policy changes. Popular support often starts small and grows. Folks who complain protest demands make others uncomfortable. That's the point. Who said that? And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez over mm. the summer. And so I hope that those who uh, were thinking about this in the summer um, are consistent. I actually think that peaceful protest is great, but and if the words make people uncomfortable, that's fine, but not, not violence, not destruction of property. Yeah, and, and the whole idea of uh, a consensus among we the people, that's why we have elections in the first place, mm. And if you lose trust in that process, then the question is, you know, what do people do if they feel disenfranchised? Um, and obviously there, there's a question. He started off that statement with uh, a strong claim that they won the election by a landslide. So this comes into, you know, if we're talking about core values, the good, the beautiful and the true. Uh, is that true would be the first question. And I don't think any of us knows with 100 percent certainty, but I think that. 
about half the country thinks that statement is true with a reasonable degree of confidence. Yeah. What do you think? I well, I I think it's true. Um, now, but granted, you're not an American citizen. I'm not an American citizen. I didn't vote, and I'm not. Which makes you a disinterested observer, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> um, I live here, so I'm interested in the outcome, certainly. Um, but but this is a very different debate from what la happened last time, or part of the what happened last time, in that this is not about a contrast between the popular vote and the electoral college vote. You mean 2000 uh, or 2016? 2016. So mm -hmm. Trump uh, lost the popular vote, uh, but he won the electoral college in 2016, um, and that brought into question. The, the setup of the Electoral College and the Constitution, as I understand it. Um, now, that, that is a very different debate. As you say, in the end, every election is in some way trying to take the temperature the, the, of what people believe, and it'll never crystallise that perfectly. Um, but you have to decide what's the best way and stick to it. And, and I think the American Constitution is as good as any that I've seen. I'm not an expert in this, but I would trust that. And that allows for the occasional uh, situation where the popular vote and the Electoral College vote don't match. And, of course, politi politicians campaign in order to win the election so that they will focus on key states and that sort of thing. So it's going to, once you institute it, it's going to more likely lead to that on certain occasions. Um, this is different. This this is where people are saying that the rules were not followed. Uh, that that even that, whereas last time, in terms of the the vote counting, it was assumed the rules were followed, but people are saying they are bad rules. Uh, in this case, the accusation is that people have cheated, and that's very very different. And then it doesn't matter what the rules are. That's why this is more important, I think. Right, and uh, and I was up until three, four in the morning on November 4th, when November 4th turned into November 5th. Uh, and it was uh, an uncanny feeling. It was, it was like there was something happening that was very obvious at the time. And I, I wrote an article that I didn't publish on my social media because of what I perceived to be, I'll call them soft restrictions on free speech. They're not the government preventing me from talking but they are uh pressures and and um uh, social proof the kind of things that tend to make people stay silent when they would otherwise speak up mm. uh but it was but i wrote this article it was called the judgment of trump and i was kind of drawing a comparison between uh the parable in the the old testament of the judgment of solomon where two women come before Trump uh, claiming to have mothered a, a, a child and um, the true mother in the end, when Solomon gives his, his judgment of uh, let's cut the child in half, you can each have half. The true mother says, no, give, give the child to the other one. Just let, let the child live. And the false mother says, I don't care about the child. Just, you know, cut it in half either way. So, this to me is sort of an, an analogy uh, to what the the responsible thing to do is in the face of of a clearly ambiguous election result, where 
very there very well may have been substantial fraud um whether or not the uh ballot harvesting and all the mail-in ballots was technically legal or not i think that's more of a gray area where uh this is where i say that trump basically in order to save the republic needs to concede the election uh and and i was a little bit uncomfortable with that position because on the one hand if we could decisively say that he won the election based on specific allegations of fraud i wouldn't be arguing that he should concede the election mm. uh but i think that it's it's clear that something happened on the, on that night right around three in the morning after they paused counting after the water main mysteriously broke uh and all these things from the pennsylvania state supreme court saying that they were going to allow ballots that came in up to three days later and so it was you know yeah. Several days after the election day, that they that they finally found enough ballots uh, to, to declare Biden the winner. But there's a sense of the entire process just being stacked against Trump, and anyone who's paid close attention to these things knows that the power elite hate Donald Trump, and that's why you and I like him, <laughs> uh, and why we're rooting for him. Yeah. But at this point, on January sixth, uh, where do we go well, from here? It, what you're describing is a mountain of circumstantial evidence. Um, uh, maybe it's proof. I don't. I don't know. You might, but at the very least, it's that. Um, and uh, certainly not, not enough to. Con we need something for, to avoid what you're describing. Or, in other words, I think Trump probably has to concede. Um, Unless there's something that that is going to convince the, the left, the Biden side, that they got it unfairly, and or maybe twenty percent, yes, or a significant number, exactly enough people to, on the other side to start questioning it and doubting it, and we're not at that point yet. Well, but wait, let, let's listen again just to the first part of it. Go on. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election. And everyone knows it, especially the other side. Uh, well, I think there's enough honest people on the other side uh, that if they knew it, they would say so, mm -hmm. actually. I, I think people at this... Well, maybe there are some... You know, if it's being done and there are perpetrators, there are people on the other side who know it and they're not saying. I wonder also whether he knows... I'm guessing he knows things we don't. Uh, and I think well. that this speaks to the, the argument that it wasn't necessarily uh, one or the other secretary of state who stole the election. It was kind of the media that stole the election by not reporting on things leading up to the election, not reporting on the Hunter Biden story, not reporting on the questionable legality of what the Supreme Court was doing. And unfortunately, the, the Supreme Court uh, and the judicial branch is supposed to be the most independent branch of government, I think that they basically have caved under the political pressure of the mob, this sort of bullying culture where, uh, you know, there was a rumor, granted this is a rumor, that you could hear what was going on inside yeah, the, the hallowed yeah. chambers of the yeah. Supreme Court and John Roberts basically silencing his colleagues saying uh, 2000 was different. There wasn't a su an entire summer of rioting before yeah. 2000. And so 
again, I think that it speaks to this sort of lack of genuine free speech in the United States where one side bullies the other into submission and we call that free speech because the government hasn't explicitly taken away that right. Do you respond to that with bullying tactics? Do you respond to that with, uh, you know, taking over a venue that, that, that does not belong to you or that you don't have permission to take over? That's where I might draw the line. And it, I think well, it was unclear what message Trump was sending yeah, today. Yeah, I mean, well, have... yeah, I mean, he's come out and condemned that. So I I'm, I'm pretty sure he'll be accused of having incited in the first place. I, I don't, I don't think he was doing that. Um, as Christians, we have to tr ultimately we have the, the we have to trust in God, and I would say you, it, what other people do isn't an excuse to do bad things as well. Right. So we have to work within the law. But having said that, at some point, if you believe, I mean, if you believe that there is not going to be a law, um, and I'm putting this hypothetically, I'm not saying this exists now. When do you decide, okay, uh, we need, uh, if we're faced with Chavez in Venezuela, do we need a Pinochet from Chile to come in and effectively institute um, a society which some years later he hands over as a, a modern democracy? Um, have we reached that point? Yeah, and I would still say no. I think that the most graceful thing that Trump could have done, and I'm, I'm not saying that this necessarily, uh, what happened today wasn't necessarily against this. He can still do it. And I think that now at this point, he probably will. We'll see. Things are unfolding. But I think he's going to, you know, uh, exit stage left on January 20th, and he'll go back to Mar-a-Lago, probably host a big rally that day. I hope that his base remains energized. Yes, it uh, and, and I think that this could be perceived, especially with the media slant that they're going to try to put on it, as something that sucks the wind out of the sails of the whole Trump movement. And I'm skeptical of any movement. I think, you know, I'm a, sort of an individualist before uh, anything else. But I think that uh, what, what the Trump movement can do is reveal a vacuum of power in Washington, D.C., uh, reveal that this is sort of a, uh, that the ritual is broken that we no longer have a clear succession from from one uh, leader to another and basically undermine for the next four years through genuine free speech, through maybe alternative news hmm. networks, and, and we're trying to do our part here with the free speech network, uh, but to give the, the genuinely alternative point of view well, what I would say is that it, it, it really could do that. There's an op there really is an opportunity. And if anybody can start this and carry it through, it will be him. But I would say only if it doesn't revolve around him as a person from this point, that steadily mm. it's about the values. And he's spoken of as though there's no sort of intellectual basis to his policies. He's just pure pragmatist. Um, well... I don't know that you can discern them as a, you know, he hasn't uh, issued a, um, a, uh, his own sort of manifesto that is coherent in, in a mm -hmm. way of an underlying political philosophy. But I think it's pretty easy to discern from the pattern of his policies and the, and the things he said that 
underlying that, there is there are some core values which stress individual freedom, uh, stress the value of a nation as an entity, stress religious freedom, um, and also, ironically, for someone who's portrayed as being um, uncultured and uncouth, actually bolstering the, the culture, American culture, including American high culture. And yes, and I'm a Brit here to tell you, Americans, there is a high American high culture, which is as high as anything that Europe has produced. Uh, American culture is something to be proud of. Um, and that is the, those are the message I get from Trump's policies. Um, and that is one of the reasons that I like him, because I believe in those values. And actually, one thing that he and his policies have made me change my mind on in the last four years is the value of the nation as a natural entity of society. Um, I was probably veering towards a sort of globalist, uh, internationalist outcome, especially economically. Um, and I think he's shown that, that the nation is something that really is to be valued. His, the way that adopting that approach has promoted peace in the Middle East, mm -hmm. for example, by dealing with those who will deal with you as, a, as an individual nation, not looking to work through these global bodies. Um, now, that is a, an exciting and positive message that I think will bring peace and economic prosperity to the world um, and you do that by beginning at home, and, and the, if that's something that he can lead America to, fantastic. Yeah, so we're going to get into what are the kind of Trump manifestos, or, or what are his core principles, That what's his legacy, assuming that he's on the way out of office, uh, and what's the, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, all that. Um, first, I want to kind of wrap up our discussion of today's events and free speech I want to talk about a headline breaking right now. Uh, this is from the Epoch Times. Twitter places restrictions on Trump video urging protesters to go home now. So this is, I think, a, a perfect encapsulation of how they've totally taken control of the narrative. And anything that Trump does will be used against him. Uh, you know, there was there was the rally beforehand. He energized people. I think he marched them toward the Capitol. And then there were some people who, who went, went beyond that. And it took you know some time before he uh, issued this call. But, um, but he's issued it, and this is totally different from what the left said about what was going on right. in Seattle. That happened for more about that. Uh, and as, as we kind of transition into the next segment, I'm I, just going to... There was one thing I wanted to say about your, the fact that Twitter was controlling this. Is, um, mm -hmm. that, that headline, that Twitter is stopping the good comments from Trump, effectively, is what you're saying. Well, um, that is worrying, except that I think what this election, if we're right, has shown uh, that at the very least, that just the numbers we have, even, you know, what we would say are questionable numbers for the election, show that millions and millions uh, have not been swayed by what seems to be the most relentless propaganda barrage uh, that that I've seen, in a, you know, I'm not a seasoned observer, but uh, extraordinary um, barrage of uh, propaganda against Trump. Uh, and despite that, many, many people saw past it. So I think that one thing that uh, Trump has succeeded in doing is showing that actually there are alternatives and you can create alternatives. 
and they're not quite as important as they think they are. I think you're right, I think they've influenced this one, but he's shown a way forward to, um, to a, a way of breaking out of that control, I would say. All right, we're going to go to a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Trump's executive order on architecture, as well as the executive order uh, about St. Thomas Beckett. Great. we start the executive order on architecture or on the anniversary of the martyrdom of St. Thomas Beckett? Let's go with the architecture. Okay, th I've been wanting to talk to you about this for a while because the story broke uh, just before Christmas. Uh, this was uh, the executive order on promoting beautiful federal civic architecture. And Trump wrote, by the authority vested in me as president, by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America, it is hereby ordered as follows. Section 1. Purpose. Societies have long recognized the importance of beautiful public architecture. Ancient Greek and Roman public buildings were designed to be sturdy and useful, and also to beautify public spaces and inspire civic pride. Throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, public architecture continued to serve these purposes. The 1309 Constitution of the City of Siena required that Whoever rules the city must have the beauty of the city as his foremost preoccupation, because it must provide pride, honor, wealth, and growth to the Sienese citizens, as well as pleasure and happiness to visitors from abroad. Three centuries later, the great British architect Sir Christopher Wren declared that public buildings are the ornament of a country. Architecture establishes a nation, draws people in commerce, makes the people love their native country. Architecture aims at eternity. Your thoughts? Well, I think it's wonderful. I think it, it's so true. And what I love about this is that, first of all, he clearly connects. This is not, um, uh, he's not making the error that so many critics of ugly buildings in cities uh, make today. So that uh, I think 
anybody who thinks that the modern brutalist style of federal building for a start thinks that really thinks that they're beautiful we've lost those people but i suggest that it's very very few um largely people who are invested in the continuation of architectural institutes mm. and, and the and the architecture departments of our modern universities which are the sort and as ever the modern university is the source of just about everything that's bad in society um so he's what he's relying on is the common um the sense the the, the common opinion of, of most people that these buildings are beautiful and he stresses the beauty of it but what he doesn't do is say, as well as utility, we need beauty. He's clearly pushing the two together. He's saying it's part of the usefulness and the purpose of the building is to be beautiful. Mm. And this is something that happened in the 19th century. I think it was the, when aesthetics started to be studied as a discipline by academics. They separated utility and beauty. Um, up until that point, that there hadn't been really a separation, as far as I'm aware. And uh, so what he's doing, he's pu pushing those back together again. Mm. And what, what happens is that many critics of ugliness in our cities, who actually share the sentiments that, he, that, is, that are being expressed there, will say, we have to go beyond utility. Um, and I say, no, no, no. If you do that, you're accepting the, the, the critique that... that, that created this problem in the first place we want utility but we want a greater understanding of what utility is a bigger picture and that includes civic pride and things yes. like that and he linked that to wealth and growth he, that mm. statement from Siena mm. so it's not abandoning uh, the things that, that that utility in the in the diminished sense the commonly used sense looks to um, efficiency, economic efficiency, political efficiency, legal efficiency, whatever the things that are consistent with the, those sort of functions. It's saying that those elements will actually uh, develop best um, in a building that is beautiful. And what he is acknowledging, he doesn't say this directly, but what I would say uh, he is, is being acknowledged, this, should we say that in that text, is that man is more than a material being and with material mm. needs. That, that this is acknowledging that he is body and soul and that um, his end is divine. Um, and that is why beauty is so important. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. I've got other things to say. I want to let you comment on what I've said. Well, and this is not... Uh, this has not been unopposed there is the american institute of architects oh, which yeah. has Doesn't come out against it. this <laughs> and uh what are the forces behind that as far as you know i mean what, what are the, the current trends or, or modes that are popular and why, why is this being opposed? okay well I'll, I'll describe my experience of the general reactions to this so i don't know specifically about them but it doesn't surprise me all the all the institutions that are pushing what we've seen are invested in the status quo. Uh, to change um, direction now would put all of those people out of a job, uh, and their primary interest is their own careers and their own jobs, I would say. Um, and uh, furthermore, uh, it would put every d architectural design... <laughs> expert uh, out of a job and the teachers in our architectural uh, departments in universities 
out of a job as well. So I think that is the primary problem these people have. And it's not just monetary, it's pride. I mean, they'd have to, a lot of people would have to make a huge U-turn to acknowledge this. Um, it, it was noticeable when I read the sort of articles about it that uh, the point was made that, that they'd done this after polling people. What buildings do you like? Mm. Um, and so they actually have pop popularity behind them. And this is always the case, that, that um, if you have uh, an emergent order, in other words, that you're getting a sense of what people believe collectively, uh, you can trust that. Um, but not not when the elites are, are controlling it. And so this is what I perceive is the, it's the kickback from the elites here. So we you mentioned that that word brutalism, which classical architecture is often contrasted with a kind of modern style where you can imagine just sort of big brick uh, building faces and or not brick, but but big slabs of concrete kind of. Yeah. Uh, what is brutalism? Who's who are the, uh, the leading lights? Or... Well, I always think of Stalinist architecture. Yeah. So, so Stalin would be the leading light here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and he's, he's a good. If I want to make a point about right. how nasty it is, why not associate it with Stalin? Uh, it's to use the phrase you use. It's a, a nine out of ten Soviet dictators agree. Yeah, brutalism is yeah. the way to go. You talked about me about the rhetorical device known as reducto ad hitlerium, where right. You accuse all your opponents of being Hitler. Well, I'm going to accuse my opponents of being Stalin. Reductio uh, ad Stalinum. Stalinum, yeah. <laughs> but um, but it, it's the uh, classic Boston Town Hall or City Hall. The, the sort of randomly proportioned, uh, often sort of, if they're not square, obtuse angled blocks that don't seem to convey some, a picture of disorder. Um, and certainly, uh, as soon as you see them, you think modernist. Somehow, this is not of the past. This is this is a break from centuries of tradition. And that was the intention of those who did it. They, they deliberately wanted to break with it. And I think it's a proof that there is no order outside the divine order, which is what all of these traditional styles were reaching for, uh, however imperfectly. That's what they're looking for. Mm. What you have beginning um, really uh, with the Bauhaus movement uh, in Europe, in Austria, is a conscious break of design principle from the past. And I think what it, I would say, what it demonstrates, given the ugliness of it, and I'd use common, the common opinion, <laughs> mm. the, 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 the common taste as a sort of corollary of common sense, uh, to back me up here, it shows that outside the divine order, uh, there is no alternative order. There is just disorder. And that's the source of its ugliness. And we're kind of circling back in a way to the idea of uh, the majority will being overturned in the sense that if people have expressed this preference, uh, who's overruling it? It's it's a small handful of uh, aesthetes or, you know, yeah. the, the, here's a quote from one of the people that has been tapped by uh, President Trump to be uh, on the, the sort of committee that, that approves uh, large-scale buildings. And he said, Americans have long understood that classical architecture is not only beautiful, it embodies the key values of our representative government. Such distinguished and, and inspiring buildings connect us to our heritage. 
and are associated with the continuity, equality, and openness essential to a functioning republic. The design of federal buildings should reflect the aesthetic and symbolic preferences of the people they are built to serve, namely classical and traditional architecture. Yet since the mid-20th century, modernist mandarins controlling government architecture have been forcing ugly designs upon us. On Friday, President Trump stood firm for tradition and beauty in public architecture and for the heartfelt desires of the American people. The National Civic Art Society, of which uh, Justin Shubo is the president, uh, applauds President Trump for signing this executive order, and we look forward to seeing the beautiful buildings that will now become a part of his legacy. Right. So th- th- what is interesting, there, I, I agree with, with every word <laughs> that that's, I couldn't have put it better at all. Including um, modernist mandarins, I like that little perfect. Flourish. Absolutely, yeah. Some I mean, he said it in two words what I said in the in a, in a stumbling way for, uh, in about five minutes. So, um, but what, the key thing here is that the, that this is not going to stifle creativity. Uh, I know that this. I'm pretty sure this is going to be the the um, accusation that. Uh, People will be, it'll be cookie cutter federal buildings all looking like Greek temples. Uh, first of all, they say classical and traditional. And there's, there's a phrase somewhere in the article that I read that said, if it's not of these styles, it must be beautiful. It's allowing for what you might call a, uh, the reestablishment of, a, of an authentic tradition. It's pointing to the past and it talks about openness to what people believe, and if you're open to that, and what people really believe, in other words, the common taste, mm-hmm. common sense, um, and so what will happen then is that it will reflect also mm. but the, what people are looking for today, and that will be beautiful too, because people desire beauty um, if they're open to it, and so um, they've actually encapsulated there the principles of something that could create new something new and previously unimagined, but nevertheless seems like a continuation of that line. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this is the way that uh, the history of art and architecture works. Nothing, or very rarely, is something just plopped out of nowhere in, uh, as a discon- discontinuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that seems to have been what we've had recently, and it's been disastrous, I would say. Usually what happens is you have people adapting and developing the best of what already exists to slowly developing and modifying needs. And when that happens, uh, you have a, a, the, a living tradition which develops mm-hmm. with time. And it seems to me that the writers of this have understood that. They've allowed enough openness to for individual interpretation but mm-hmm. within the bounds of clearly defined limits so the discontinuity is one of the the symptoms it's, it's a sort of break from the past it's a, a violent rupture uh <laughs> well I, I it's one of the symptoms of what happened recently that's bad given that it was a rupture from something that was good right is what i would say okay it doesn't all i mean in a sense to to implement this is a discontinuity from what happened for the last hundred years, but I would say that's right. We we need a uh, a reset button there. to to, uh, to use a and, phrase, yeah, in order to do that. And a lot of this originates in the universities, which is something that you've worked to kind of counteract 
uh, both with Pontifex University, but also some of your plans for the year to come. And I think that this has to be one of the focus foci focuses of our conversation is, you know, where do we go from here? If we're not, uh, hopefully those appointees will, will carry over and that executive order will have some sway yeah. in the next administration. But assuming that every other agency is just going to continue down the path that was uh, interrupted maybe for the better four years ago, uh, what do we do as everyday citizens without a particularly uh, wide reach to start to imprint our values on the culture? Well, I, I would say this is something that I think we're going to cover in in future it's weeks. a long-term question yeah yeah yeah, it, yeah. That is, to answer that in a nutshell it's not so easy but what it involves i would say is that we exercise the freedom we have <coughs> excuse me in such a way that um in our personal interactions and the way and the things that we do we are reflecting these values mm. now uh, how deeply you go as you know as a catholic i'm going to say this begins with prayer in the home and exposure, almost the bearing of our soul, uh, the, the, the nudest and most vulnerable we could be is actually when we pray to God. Mm. Um, and if you do that in front of beautiful images um, that um, inspire good prayer, mm. that will be a powerful influence. There are other things we can do as well. Well, I want to, uh, <laughs> I think I'm interrupting you, but I want to yeah. uh, report the latest on the okay. happenings today uh, at, at uh, 3.01, just 10 minutes ago, uh, the president tweeted, uh, these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. And I also want to uh, just note a uh, little, uh, what would you call it? It's, it's, it's a, a disclaimer that comes attached to this tweet added in by Twitter that says, this claim of election fraud is disputed and this tweet can't be replied to, retweeted, or liked due to a risk of violence. So very interesting. That's a new disclaimer that they probably had to, right in real time today as, as events unfolded. Um, and, you know, I'll leave it up to people to decide whether this tweet is uh, some kind of an incitement to violence. I don't, I don't see that, but I, um, I think that that's another reason why this program exists is to be able to say what's going on without censorship or without the kinds of restrictions that social media companies are going to be increasingly putting on uh, any kind of dissent. Well, it'd be interesting to see whether whether they interpret that as an incitement to violence um, when he directly says, go home and don't be violent. So, well, it's so, a bit like the uh, stand back and stand by or whatever the mm -hmm. debate comment was about the, the Proud Boys, where people will still hear in that or stand down and stand down and stand by uh, where people will hear that as a as an incitement to violence. And, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's tricky. It's a, uh, it's a bit of a tightrope act, but um, another comment that I like here from the comic Norm MacDonald, he says, 
I loved when the violent terrorists made sure to respect the velvet, velvet ropes in Statuary Hall as they walked through the Capitol. So I do think that there's, there's a contrast between uh, this kind of a protest, even though it, it maybe went beyond the, the strict limits of uh, free speech. Well, shall we say, it, looking at the words, mm-hmm. I mean, as you say, what, how you interpret them depends on what you believe about the person. Um, but those words are consistent with your approach, I would say. Say that there is a problem. Something wrong has been done, and we're not conceding that, mm. but the response is not this. Um, and so, but that doesn't mean you, you say there's no problem. He's, he's very clear that he's not saying that. Right. And actually, if you want to appease a mob, you say, yes, you've got that what you're complaining about is right, but this is not the way to do it. That's what he's saying. Mm. He's not telling them that they're wrong. Um, I, I don't think he believes they're wrong. Actually, he's, clearly, he right. you know, he he's, agrees with them. Um, but why should he, why should he change that in order to uh, appease the the press, which is what he he would be doing really? There. Right. Let's go to our third and final topic for this afternoon, which is another executive order that probably got even less uh, attention. This was on December twenty ninth. Uh, when the executive order honoring the 850th anniversary of the martyrdom of St. Thomas Beckett. Um, I was not aware of Thomas Beckett's life or legacy, but uh, how is this connected to the legacy that Trump will leave behind? And who was Thomas Beckett? I had to, I have to go to a, to a, to an Englishman to to find out. (laughs) Okay. Struggling to remember my history lessons. I, I was aware of him. So he was, um, I think at the time, Henry II, and we're going back to the 12th century, I think the 1100s, he was made Archbishop of Canterbury, um, nominated by the king, and was expected to be the king's puppet, and then turned around and surprised the king and became a good and independent archbishop, um, true to the faith. Um, and, <clears throat> and he was certainly, he had been very good friends with Henry II, um, and Henry II was clearly irritated by this. And I'm just thinking about the, the film that was made that won Oscars um, that was based on a play about Beckett. So the film was made in 1964, and I think it was Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton, hmm. um, which is well worth watching, actually. Um, I think I might watch it again. We almost um, watched it on New Year's, we, but we, we had did. such a lively conversation that <laughs> yeah. we never got around to it. That's right. Um, but uh, so what happened was it's, it's disputed whether he actually wanted Beckett killed. But he, he, he said something like, who will rid me of this uh, meddlesome priest or something like that? And uh, so some noblemen went then and uh, he was murdered on the steps, I believe, of Archbishop of the... Um, of Canterbury Cathedral um, but he was so popular that he quickly became recognised as, as a saint but also as a symbol of what you might call the separation of state and, and religion um, as well because uh, he clearly was faithful to the, the church without being um, un-English I think this is a crucial thing so he wasn't a traitor to um, he just um, would not back down on matters of faith in the light in the uh, against pr- political pressure mm. 
Um, and I think that this is, this is important. Why, why would Trump do that? <laughs> uh, one, uh, he can clearly see that this is emblematic of what's going to come. You know, the, the, I don't think he's doing this as a summary of what he's done in the past. I think he's looking ahead with this and, can, and sees this as a struggle um, a, a battle, if you like, between secular forces and the forces of the faith. Secular forces. So, yeah, this is uh, something from uh, Clifford Brown in uh, Ricochet. He writes that uh, Beckett was murdered for not sufficiently subordinating the church to his society's ruling secular elite preferences. Uh, after the assassination, Henry II revised the two most offensive articles in negotiation with Pope Alexander III. 850 years later, on December 29th, 1170, oh, I'm sorry, 850 years ago, on December 29th, 1170, Henry's knights entered the Canterbury Cathedral and murdered Archbishop Thomas Becket. The pastor of the Brighton Oratory makes the stakes of the conflict clear. Uh, and I think that this is... Um, from the executive order. Um, no, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, scratch that. But but the, the proclamation on the 850th anniversary of the martyrdom of St. Thomas Becket um, notes, talks about the Magna Carta. It talks about uh, basically Thomas uh, giving his life so that, as he said, the church will attain liberty and peace. And the important thing about this is that uh, there is no conflict between um, national pride and faith. Mm. Um, and I think uh, this is interesting. So uh, uh, we were saying earlier that this, for me, is what really epitomizes the Trumpian philosophy, is the assertion of, of a nation as something that is um, important. And <clears throat> with my Catholic friends... Uh, we've been talking about uh, consideration of it in a way, a sort of natural society of man. Certainly the Bible seems to suggest it is. It talks about the nations and Israel as a nation in the way that, uh, <clears throat> shall we say, uh, analogous to the family being a natural association of man. It's something that you, know, you just can't escape from. Everybody is part of a nation um, and ought to be. Uh, and it's not something to be abolished. And that means, therefore, that um, all people work best as part of a nation um, and that world government, and, uh, unless we suddenly become a single nation <laughs> you know, defined by a single culture and feel bound in that way, I just don't see that happening, uh, is, is never ought to never happen. Um, and he's asserting through that, I think, what is at the heart of the, of the American nation. So we started off this conversation talking about optics, uh, the optics of today's protests on the, mm -hmm. the Capitol and on the, the Congress building. And uh, even since then, things have been unfolding. And I think that what I come away with is that the narrative of today depends on who's doing the narrating. And I think that you know already on my Twitter feed, um, we're starting to see the, the revisions taking place. Twitter's doing everything in their power to prevent people from seeing what the president actually said. Yeah. It will play his clip one more time just for good measure since it's being censored. And one, one of my purposes in, uh, in, in the Free Speech Network is that 
if you believe that speech is is problematic, um, that's almost a, a surefire sign that it has to be given the light of day. If you think that something is is so wrong, the last thing you want to be doing is censoring it or putting it into the the dark corners of the internet uh, where it will just sort of fester and grow. Um, if it's a bad idea, let it see the light of day and sunshine, as they say, is the best disinfectant. Uh, in this case, I don't think that there's anything particularly rotten or festering about this clip. Um, should we listen to it one more time just okay. for, for good measure? Why don't we close with this? Yeah. Okay. Uh, before you do that, I'm just going to say, I just want to make the po reiterate this point about this man who is portrayed so often as uncultured, uncouth, um, as being sort of the lowest common denominator, a form of American culture that many Americans are embarrassed about, is the way that it seems to me. Mm -hmm. Yet here is the man, uh, despite the way he's described, who has done more for American culture than any that I'm aware. Um, references to Thomas Beckett as a symbol of uh, religious freedom um, and the arch and architecture and beauty in ways that are inspired and show great awareness. All right, and with that, here's President Trump. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election. But we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. Any closing comments? No, I think I made my closing comments before the before that. I just want to say, well, actually, yeah. I, again, just to reiterate, contrast that with the the rhetoric over the summer uh, while there was violence in our in our other cities. And uh, if you are interested in free speech and the uh, the the kind of next steps for those of us who are feeling underrepresented by the current mainstream media options, uh, go ahead and subscribe to the Free Speech Network's mailing list and get updated when we're about to go live, when we have upcoming shows. We're going to try to make this uh, at least a, sort of every other week, if not a weekly show. So tune in next time to Grace in Danger for another edition of Grace in Danger.